I'm I'm thinking like from what I understand about pandemics, there is a balance between lethality and transmissibility. Right. From a virus's perspective, lethality is not such a great trait to have. Because a virus is like a collective organism. I mean, to to go back to our Star Trek Voyager metaphors, it's like if the Borg just killed everyone instead of assimilating them. Like the virus wants to assimilate you. It doesn't want to kill you. It wants to use your body for its reproductive purposes. Whoa. This is Queers at the End of the World, where around the campfire at night, our elders entrance us with retellings of RuPaul's Drag Race, seasons three through nine. I'm your host, Nina. And I'm your host, Nat. And today on Queers at the End of the World, we're talking about the 2014 novel Station Eleven by Emily St. John Mandel. Before we get into Station Eleven, though, we should tell you about our guest for the show, my dear friend, Austin. We asked Austin if they would join us on the show this season way back in the summer, and they said then that Station Eleven is the book they wanted to talk about. And so we've been looking forward to this conversation all season. Yeah, and for me, this moment feels like a really good time to talk about Station Eleven because we're a year and a half into COVID, and a lot of cities are starting to open up and transition out of these months of lockdown. And for me, it feels like a really good time to take a look at Station Eleven because it involves a flu-like disease that's in some ways a lot like COVID. So there are aspects of the book that are really familiar. And I find that for me as a reader, it sort of feels like a doorway into thinking about this last year of COVID. And this last year is also inevitably my frame for thinking about the book this second time through as well. Absolutely. And the other reason that we wanted to have Austin on the show right now is that we have something to celebrate with them, which is the release of their new novel. (laughs) Austin is also a novelist. They write under the name A.E. Osworth, and their new book is called We Are Watching Eliza Bright. It's out from Grand Central Publishing as of this April, and you can find it pretty much wherever you buy books. Nat, I know you were an early reader of this novel, so you've read it lots of times, but I am reading We Are Watching Eliza Bright for the first time right now, and I can confirm that it is deeply enjoyable and doing such cool stuff. Fans of the show will appreciate that it's about gaming and toxic masculinity. It follows this rad female game designer as she wakes the sleeping beast that is male rage on the internet and all the fallout from that. Um, It's a thriller, and one of the coolest things about it for me as a reader is that it's written in two different collective voices. And I didn't know what to expect from this, but honestly, it's just such an awesome tool, not just for telling a story, but honestly for thinking about what it means to be a person and have an identity in the age of social media. I am loving it so far. That's We Are Watching Eliza Bright by A.E. Osworth. All right. Welcome to the show, Austin. (laughs) Thank you so much. And thank you for saying all those very nice things about my book. Yay. Thank you for being here. And before we start, we should also note that Austin is going to be with us for the first half of the show. And in the second half, Nat and I will take it over again and we'll close out the conversation on Station Eleven. So, Okay, so let's give you guys the plot. This is a relatively recent one. So this is just your reminder that there will be spoilers ahead. So this book plays a lot with time and perspective, jumping around to different moments before and after the plague and seeing the story from different characters' points of view. It starts with the perspective of a man named Jeevan Chowdhury, who is a paramedic in training, and he's at a performance of King Lear in Toronto when suddenly this A-list actor who's playing Lear on the stage has a massive heart attack, 
And Jeevan tries to save him. He like jumps up and tries to do his paramedic thing. But the actor, whose name is Arthur Leander, he dies anyway. And as Jeevan is walking home through the snow after this has happened, he gets a call from his best friend Hua, who's an ER doctor. And Hua tells Jeevan that there's a massive pandemic on the way. It's already in Canada. It's incredibly infectious and lethal. And it's this virus called the Georgia flu. So basically, if you so much as like pass somebody who has it on the street, you're going to be infected and you're dead within 24 hours. So Jeevan believes Hua, he stocks up on all the groceries he can get and he locks himself in with his brother Frank, who's a former journalist and uh, Frank, his brother is paralyzed from the waist down. Um, And the two of them together kind of prepare to wait out the pandemic in this apartment. At this point, we flash forward 20 years and settle into the point of view of Kirsten Raymond, um, an actress with the Traveling Symphony, which is a group of traveling performers who wander throughout the Great Lakes region on foot with horse-drawn pickup trucks doing Shakespeare and music between all these settlements. We learn that the plague Jeevan heard about did, in fact, destroy the world as we know it. Within a week or two, actually, most people were dead of the flu or of the ensuing violence or exposure because the flu hit in the winter. Humanity has been virtually wiped out, including almost everyone at that performance of Lear. Kirsten was a child actor with the role uh, in that same play. And now as we meet her again, she's still performing Shakespeare with the symphony. Uh, Raymond has found family in the symphony, including her best friend, August. Um, And when they aren't playing violin or running lines, the two of them like breaking into old houses to write poetry and look for gossip magazines. The central plot of this story is basically simple and will feel pretty familiar to folks who like post-apocalyptic narratives. Kirsten and the symphony enter a town where something's wrong. It used to be a pleasant place with a bunch of families living in old fast food joints, but now a cult has taken hold. The leader of the cult, called The Prophet, is a total asshole with a penchant for violently coercing women and girls into marrying him because he thinks he was saved for a reason, and that reason was to spout bullshit and get people pregnant. (laughs) (laughs) So the symphony is like, let's get out of here. But then a kid who was expecting The Prophet to marry her any minute now stows away in one of their caravans. The prophet retaliates by kidnapping three members of the symphony. And to simplify things a bit, Kirsten and August spend the rest of their arc of the book evading the prophet while trying to get to the Severn City Airport, where they think they'll find more of their friends. So one of the interesting things about Station Eleven is that even though this is a central plot line, it's really only a small part of the book, which moves way backwards in time to tell the story of Arthur Leander, who's the actor who died on stage back in part one, as well as a little less backwards to the story of Clark, who is Arthur's best friend. And Clark survives the plague with a group of other passengers who are stranded in the Severn City Airport. And then it also sort of moves back and sideways, I guess, to tie up Jeevan's story in the aftermath of the plague as he leaves his now dead by suicide brother in the ruins of Toronto and sets off for the South, where he eventually becomes a post-apocalyptic healer and a home baker in the ruins of Virginia. Ultimately, the timelines of most of the survivors intersect at the airport, where Kirsten arrives just in time to confront and defeat the prophet and meet an aging Clark who shows her through his telescope a town in the distance which seems to have gotten the electricity back on. And the novel ends with the symphony moving south into uncharted territory to go check out those lights. So thanks for being here, Austin. So even though this book is from 2014, a lot of folks read it this year. And I was going to ask, what's changed for you about Station Eleven in the context of COVID? So um, the first time I read Station Eleven, I started reading it on a plane. Um, I got 
I think like 73 pages in and I was like, cool, I'm going to finish this later. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Totally. (laughs) Because I found it to be one of the most realistic apocalypse scenarios uh, that I'd Mm -hmm. ever read. And I read like, I read a lot of speculative fiction. I read, I'm pretty omnivorous in my tastes. And when I hadn't, when I encountered this, this was the first one where I was like, I can see this exact thing occurring. Mm-hmm. The, in terms of like the inciting incident, the the particular plague, the Georgia flu, and this lived rent free in my head for a really long time. <laughs> <laughs> There's a particular scene in this book, The Air Gradia Flight, that lived rent free in my head with that. Yeah, I'm excited to talk about airplanes and the airplanes in this book. And as soon as COVID hit, I was actually not at home and I had to take a plane mm. to get back. And this book was all I could think about flying back from, I was at Banff, um, which is a writing residency yeah. in Canada. And I went there when this was not a concern. And then as I was there, COVID-19 unfolded and then it started happening there too. And I mm. got on a plane. Austin, I think we were crossing the skies with Station Eleven in our heads at the same moment in time. <laughs> it was like, oh my god, really? Yeah, I was. I'd been excited about reading this book, and I was in Seattle visiting my best friend. And you know, like they have like a million amazing used bookstores in Seattle. And I finally found a copy of it the day before I was flying back, which happened to be February twenty ninth. So like, I was just like, do do do. I'm gonna read this book on the plane. <laughs> <laughs> Well, like that morning, like on the way to the airport, I was hearing like those reports about like how the first case was found in Seattle. And then I got on the plane and then I was reading Station Eleven and this lady was coughing next to me. And I was just like, okay. (laughs) Hmm. You guys tuned in with some cosmic energy with this. Austin, what were some of the ways that you felt like it was realistic? I mean, you said like the pandemic the way the pandemic played out felt realistic to you, right? Yeah. And some of that realism has simply been highlighted for me in the past year. Mm. It's the emotional tone of things that makes it feel realistic to me, as well as the actual plot beats. So for instance, I've got a section highlighted. This was another thing that was hard to explain years later. But up until that morning, the Georgia flu had seemed quite distant, especially if one happened not to be on Mm. social media. So like the idea that like, like Nina, you and I were traveling right? while the entirety of Wuhan was locked down. Totally. And the emotional tenor of like, yeah, that's mm-hmm. across the world and we don't have to worry about that right now. And then all of a sudden it's here. That realism has been underscored for me in the last year. We've just seen the person who shows up at the supermarket and gets five grocery carts full of things to go lock down in an apartment. So yes, it it is about the plot points. It is about that gasoline goes stale. It is about answering the question, like what would happen if there actually was something that had a 99% mortality rate. But the way that the characters respond to these things, those responses don't feel heightened and they feel colored by all of the various isms because people have all of those things with them too. And so people aren't going to respond like emotionally, rationally. Yeah. I think about that scene where Jeevan gets his shopping carts full of food and like goes into his brother's apartment. I think one of the things that I really appreciate about this book is like clearly Emily St. John Mandel thinks a lot about like sort of 
happenstance, luck, and the ways in which like relationships with people um, kind of create the conditions through which we make the decisions we make, whatever they are. So part of what I think is so riveting is like, Jeevan is in this situation where he's fighting with his girlfriend and he happens to be near his brother's house. And he's just had this really intense experience that he kind of wants to share with his brother, who's an insomniac. He's going to be up anyway. And there's a way that you can sort of imagine it going a million different ways, you know, because you can see that if his brother wasn't an insomniac, if he hadn't been fighting with his girlfriend and he felt like he was obliged to go home for this particular character, the story would have turned out differently based on all of these things that have nothing at all to do with global threats or like, you know, percentages of survival and everything to do with like whose house you're near and whether you're mad at them. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I feel like that plays out on a larger scale, too, in the parts of the book that are the, you know, 20 years in the future after the day one of the pandemic hitting. Because the randomness of that single night and the way those first few days played out dictated who ended up where and with who else. Mm -hmm. And the logical narrative consequence of that is also not everyone automatically forms a hierarchical violent group. Right. And there seems to be this observation that groups of people manage themselves in a variety of different kinds of ways, which Mm -hmm. I feel like in a lot of this kind of fiction, you end up with this sense of the compound and the outside. And this does not have that dichotomy. It's chaotic in the way that nature feels chaotic almost because it's subject to that true randomness where there are places in nature that are exceedingly dangerous and there are places that are beautiful and safe and lovely. And it's just this whole mix of things that the characters are, you know, because you have this um, wandering group uh, in the symphony, they're able to be observers of these different collectives, shanty towns, cults, all these things that have naturally risen up as a result of that chaos of the initial moment. And I also felt a sense of realism in that aspect. I think that's something that the book addresses a number of times, like how because people are just sort of where they are, like, you're not necessarily with the people that you think would be in your apocalypse band, you know? Okay, okay, hold on. If we had been stuck where we were, (laughs) <laughs> when the pandemic hit, uh, who would we be with? Where would we be? I would be in Banff with a whole bunch of artists. Oh, uh, that's a good <laughs> good outcome. Perhaps one of the better ones at Banff with a whole bunch of artists where everyone has their own room. Nice. I, depending on like when we want to say the initiating moment of COVID was, I plausibly could have actually been in Costa Rica, which Seems actually like it would have been incredibly lucky for me because I went there to stay in a permaculture retreat center to do a week of calisthenics. I love you, Nat. (laughs) I know. I'm like, that is about the most Nat thing I can think of. I I know. I know. I was like working out twice a day in the jungle and like COVID was happening because I remember seeing signs um, in the airport that said, if you're passing through and you came from mainland China, then you have to let folks know so they can talk to you about quarantine or testing. And if I had ended up there, it would have been great because it's like a environmental education space as well as uh, an event place that they Mm -hmm. rent to small groups like the one I was with. 
And it's pretty much self-sufficient. Wow. So they have water and this whole network of running it. And they grow a lot of the food they serve there. I don't think all of it, but I mean, it's a, it's a permaculture farm. So, you know, gosh, we would have probably all just like fed into the already existing systems of self-sustainability that they had going on there. <laughs> I just am thinking that at some point, at least, I really just want to spend some time imagining this world of post-apocalyptic permaculture retreat full of really, really buff people. <laughs> <I know>. <laughs> <laughs> it's a short story, Nat. <laughs> I I will if it was sort of like that first moment of when the pandemic hit, I would have been in Seattle with my best friend, which is awesome. We probably would have had to like fend off, you know, hordes of Amazon bros, which is terrible. Um, but the worst part is I wouldn't have been with my wife. She was she's, you know, across the country. And I think that's something that I just th- the idea of being stuck on the other side of the continent and and having to like do this and not know if back was OK or like not be with her is, you know, woof. Would not want that. <laughs> yeah. There are some moments of profound emotional depth in this book that come from just the acknowledgement of those truths that I think is a demonstration of how you can feel deeply about apocalypse without it always necessarily needing to be about those moments of violence and threat and rape and abuse. And of course, that's not to say that writing about those isn't okay, but it's an interesting example in Station Eleven to see just how impactful it is to just think about being separated from your people and how truly awful that would be in that moment. Or even just some of your people. We live a life where our people are all over the place, you know? <laughs> yeah. Because of planes and cars and all that. So that before and after in and of itself would be huge. Just realizing you weren't probably never going to see certain people again would be, mm. I mean, it would be hard to have that realization. I think if I was in that situation, I would always have hope in my mind that somehow I was going to, things were going to change, you know? Yeah. Which really contextualizes Elizabeth, if you think about it, her psychology, that sort of radical hopefulness that turns so toxic. Mm, yeah. And Elizabeth is is one of the characters, uh, kind of all of the characters in the book are sort of connected in one way or another to this actor, Arthur Leander. And the character of Elizabeth is his second wife, who also happens to be, because she was also on the way to his funeral, in the same airport with the character Clark. So they end up together at this apocalyptic moment. That's really true, Austin. Like she has this sense of like, everything happens for a reason. And it doesn't start that way. It starts as, you know, this will not be the end. This cannot be what it actually winds up being. This cannot be as bad as it winds up being. And she has like, a solid argument for why she thinks that too, um, why she has that hope. Mm-hmm. She studied art history and there are all of these times where everyone thought it was absolutely the end and then it just keeps going. Right. Um, which to be yeah. honest, it does. It does just with far fewer people. In right. this case, it yeah. also does. And so she's right about that. And also the sort of like twist and morph mm-hmm. from that positivity, from that hope into everything happens for a reason. You know, my son is right when he says... Um, when he's reading Revelations to the dead of Air Gradia. 
Yeah, I feel like we mentioned the plane a couple times. What is it about that plane that it stayed with you for so long afterward? Yeah, so in the book, when they are all landing at the Severn City Airport, which later becomes the Museum of Civilization and the collective settlement that springs from every plane that landed there, um, there are all sorts of planes getting diverted to this airport. And all of them are just letting off into the airport, letting off into the airport. And by some stroke of luck, none of those people have been infected with the Georgia flu. But there is a plane that lands, Air Gradia Flight 452. And that plane goes as far away from the airport as possible and lets no passengers out. I'm going to like tear up just thinking about it. I think about that image. I thought about it before the pandemic. Like, I, w- I want to say, like, once a month, I thought about the image of that. And after the pandemic, I have thought about it every day. Yeah. So I'm just going to read a little passage. And here at the airport, Air Gradia 452, silent in the distance near the perimeter fence, by unspoken agreement, never discussed. Clark tried not to look at it and sometimes almost managed to convince himself that it was empty, like all of the other planes out there. Don't think of that unspeakable decision to keep the jet sealed rather than expose the packed airport to a fatal contagion. Don't think about what enforcing that decision may have required. Don't think about those last few hours on board. Um, And I think about that decision um, and about the willpower to keep the plane sealed. And I didn't have as dark a view of it as the character of Clark did. Yeah. I thought about the absolute love for the collective that it must have taken to know what is about to occur and to decide to spend your last hours sealed in a plane. Yeah. While everyone dies around you and you know that you are next. Yeah. When I imagine it, I imagine what the inside of the plane was. And I do not think about what it must have taken to enforce the decision. When I think about the inside of the plane, I actually imagine, and this is not, I I don't think that I can even rightly point to anything in the text that gives me this. Um, But I, I point to my own experience and my own feeling. Um, I think about the unanimous resolution because I don't think you could have enforced it. I don't think you could have either. I mean, you know, even even just partly because there are emergency exits in a plane. There are, you know, there are six ways out. Clark does have a dark view of it. And that's pretty interesting because I, I agree with you. I think they would have had to decide together. And it's horrible to think about what it might have been like in there. But it's also... Something I, I I think I do believe that. After, not that it's the choice everybody would have made, but that it is like something that humans can do for each other and and have done before. And I think about it in terms of the pandemic that we are continuing to experience and the kinds of choices I have watched various communities make. Mm. And I think about it whenever I see a report of you know some rich white people having a large wedding. Totally. Um, Yeah. (laughs) Versus, um, you know, most of my community, I will not say all, making decisions that seemed unthinkable, but that have to be made um, and to lighten the load of of those decisions upon the collective. Yeah. Mm, Yeah. One of the things that moment made me think of is during COVID, one of the things I I had to myself dispense with was I think a sense of entitlement to a death where I have company like family by my side or someone there to like ease it for me because I've I know so many people have died in the hospital alone and 
I think about that with the folks on the on that plane, because, of course, there are other people there. But there is this sense of being alone and away from the people that you probably would have imagined to be able to die with. You know, for me, that was something to really think about during COVID, like, just that I had this sense of entitlement around that. And the reality is, it's unknowable what is going to happen to you. And it's unknowable as to whether or not there will be anyone there who has been a part of your life or not. And that whole scene there was just so evocative of that for me. And and I I think about folks dying in hospitals of COVID almost every day. And the feeling of not being able to, for your death not to be enough to break rules or whatever, right? Because we have this collective need for as many people to survive as possible. So there's no conclusion there, but just so many thoughts come from that single part of Station Eleven for me. And to me, that image, the image of the Air Gradia Flight 452 and the reason that it has stuck with me for years, I read this book when it came out in 2014, is that it is an image of love for a collective even when that collective is people you do not know. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that actually feels like a good place to start talking about disability in this book because so much of the conversation around love for the collective in my community has been coming from friends who are immunocompromised or people who have immunocompromised folks in their life. And over the course of this year, hearing so so many different things from the disabled people in my life that they've seen reflected kind of more broadly in culture and and hearing their responses to this. Um, Everything from like, why couldn't we do remote work when it was just my survival that depended on the ability to do that because I needed to have a job to like friends being like, if you are going out to dinner right now, you are endangering my life and the lives of people that I love because the more people have this virus, the more danger I'm in. And I have to stay locked in my house. I can't go out. So, you know, this this sort of unequal impact. And it's interesting to me because I feel like it's like this totally gorgeous image of love for the collective. And I think it is something that's like missing from so many post-apocalypses is a recognition of how people do that. And then on the other hand, there's a sort of way that that plays out in the character of Frank and... Frank is Jeevan's brother. In the first part of the novel, they're holed up together in an apartment in Toronto where Jeevan has brought all these supplies because he got the early warning about the plague. And Frank is paraplegic, so he's in a wheelchair. He used to be a war journalist, so he covered conflicts, and he got shot at some point, and the bullet pierced his spine. So after their food runs out, they are stuck in Toronto and they're trying to think about what to do. And the way that it's sort of framed in the book is that for some reason that's sort of not explained by the characters, it's clear that Jeevan must leave. And so what Frank says is, I don't want to come with you. I don't want to be out there. I don't want to see what's happening out there. I don't want to experience the misery and violence again. I got enough of that as a war reporter. And Jeevan is like, you know, basically like, I don't want to do this without you. And Frank is like, well, I'm going to kill myself too bad. <laughs> And so Frank does, he kills himself and Jeevan leaves. And to me, that just sort of like, I don't trust the narrative anymore because it it's like Frank's not part of the collective, you know, because he can't walk. So this is what I was talking about when I was like, at the point of the apocalypse, we will still have all the isms. Right, totally. Um, and the thing about Frank is that, at least from my read of the text, is that he has some pretty strong internalized ableism. 
Mm. And in the context of that, the narrative makes sense to me. And also, I think the reason that I have such a strong reaction to it as like, come on, give us Frank in in post-apocalyptic world, please, is because we don't have enough narrative that does that. So all of a sudden, Frank is now the stand-in for all disabled people. Right. Yeah. I mean, there were scenes in this book that did unexpected things. And in this situation, I would have liked to have a version of the story where it didn't automatically mean that he was like, not going to be able to cut it and whatever happened afterwards. And that instead something played out of letting us explore like the ways that you would problem solve towards survival if you were in that situation. And I feel like the author does try that um, does not give us a satisfying like alternate story. And it's with the young woman who needs a fixer right. in the Severn City Airport. Yeah, she just wanders off and disappears. Like, <laughs> And I think it could have been so much more interesting to figure out how she goes through withdrawal and then how she deals without a fixer. Right. Yeah. And by the way, I know of one piece of media that does that in particular. Mm-hmm. And that is Apocalypse Untreated. Um, which was written by Gabby Dunn and Brittany Nichols. It's an Audible original podcast. So I know that people are doing the work in terms of thinking about mental health and a post-apocalyptic world. Um, It just was not this book. Like, I wonder, you know, to your point, Austin, about like other disabled characters in this world, like where are all the people who lost an arm? You know, like where are the people who didn't die from withdrawal? (laughs) And hell, where are the people who just need glasses? Oh, yeah. (laughs) Okay. Speaking of that, I I really thought about that. This has actually caused me extreme levels of anxiety such that after I read this book, I was like, oh, you know what I'm putting in my queer go bag? Crokies. What is a crokey and is it a cronut? (laughs) I'm also putting cronuts in my queer go bag, but... Okay, crokies are like those those straps that the like dude bros wear to hold their glasses on their face. You know, mm. like it attaches to the sides of your glasses and then like if your glasses fall off, it's on you like a necklace so that they don't just go away. If- oh, I think we all need those. Yes, yes. Not just for my glasses, like also for all of my other like <laughs> just I can just like use a carabiner and like attach my package of crackers to it. We're going to have a lot of stuff strapped to us in this apocalypse. (laughs) Yeah, we were talking about that in Mad Max, like how they had just festooned with things. But it's like in Mad Max, it's all like my cool wrench and my cool knife. And like on me, I just feel like it's going to be like this toy frog I like. These crackers. (laughs) (laughs) I am my go bag. (laughs) Well... I feel like our question for kind of closing our conversation should not be what is in your apocalyptic queer go bag, but like, what is your queer apocalypse dream job? (laughs) Oh gosh. I'm, I'm so, I was prepared for the go bag question. I was not prepared for this. (laughs) Of course I listened to you guys. So I was like, I was prepared to tell you what was in my actual go bag because I live in Portland, Oregon. We had a hell of a wildfire season. Okay. I want to know both. That, I'm really excited about oh, your actual go bag, too. <laughs> my my actual go bag had two tarot decks in it. Yes. Woo! For me, tarot is one of the ways that I connect to people that I know very well and also people that I don't know very well. 
mm-hmm. um, whatever you believe about tarot, it certainly does facilitate a good sleepover talk. Absolutely. An excellent way to communicate, especially when there are other external things going on where you might not have the wherewithal to simply pick up a, an emotionally rigorous conversation, mm-hmm. but that something can prompt you into them. Yeah. This year, the tarot decks in my house were like, okay, I can't stop my thoughts from racing. I can't figure out how I feel. So it's a way to sort of just actually check in to when you're super anxious and don't know where to focus. Yeah. It's really grounding. I do my tarot card every morning. Nice. Um, and so I had two tarot decks in my journal, in my go bag during wildfire season. And like all the other things too, like I did not, for instance, neglect sneakers. Like <laughs> yes. I did not, for instance, neglect my water bottle. Those were also a, an emergency power brick, also all in my go bag and two tarot decks in my journal. Hell yeah. Once again, both and. <laughs> yes. <laughs> All right, but dream job, dream job. In Station Eleven, there's this thing about calling and careers, right? Like Jeevan figuring out he wants to be a paramedic, um, Kirsten getting to act. And actually, it's kind of this much more wholesome version of that thing where in the post-apocalypse, you can just sort of do whatever you want. Here's mm-hmm. the thing. I have my dream job. Yay! Oh, I have now. it now. <laughs> I wrote a novel. I, my dream job is novelist. Like, I, I got it. And so... I I don't think my dream job changes in the apocalypse is what I'm discovering as I think about this question. Like I still want to make up stories. I still want to sit down and play pretend. And so I think I find a way to do exactly what I am doing after whatever apocalypse it is. So you're like the DM of the settlement. And also (laughs) have, have we like found a printing press in the basement of an old high school? And we're like getting getting the novel out via the traveling symphony when it stops through town. Yo, and like written episodically like a Dickens situation. And people are like adding illustrations as it as it comes to them and then passing it on. Yeah, I can fuck with that. (laughs) What about y'all? I think I'm farming. I think I'm growing food and and I think I'm also having like Intense mediated conversations with people about their feelings. <laughs> <laughs> with some tarot decks, Nina. Do you yes, want some tarot decks yes, for that? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> yeah. I'm like imagining you coming through the settlement with your tarot decks, Austin, and I'm like, oh, finally. Because <laughs> like, I didn't make it go back because I can't think ahead. But the, um, yeah. So I think I'm having intense mediated conversations, growing food and making puppet shows, um, which again is also like, those are the things that I, you know, am working hard to make room for in my life now. And also then the just like intense mediated conversations thing is just how, where I end up in every group that I've ever joined. So <laughs> it's almost inevitable. You know, it's going to happen. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and, and, you know, I like it. <laughs> Excellent. We're going to need those. So, you know, so I always have kind of a fantasy that I want to be in like the group that is like the ones that like are the like search party and like the field crew and keep the whole compound safe. Mm -hmm. Because it's like, it's just like a badass role where it's like physical and you have to be like trained for it. And I would be the person that helps those people stay physically trained and ready. And so I would help them set up their training facility and be there to lead workout classes so that people can stay 
strong and prepared and make sure that their joints are feeling as good as they could feel and you know, just any kind of like body movement that people wanted to do, I would make it happen. That's so, amazing. I, you know, I would. That's a people- perfect nat job, is what that <laughs> yeah, is. is. It is. I'm in, I'm imagining the the settlement presenting you with your ceremonial sweatband. Oh my gosh, that's what I want. People would find that in the gym um, of that high school where the printing press was. Mm-hmm. And they were bringing it back to my zone where I have all this stuff set up for people to train on. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I feel so seen. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. Well, we're out of time, Austin. So we'll let you go. But thank you so much for being on the show with us. Thank you so much for talking to us, Austin. This has been wonderful. Thank you for having me. This has been so, so lovely. Listeners, you can get Austin's new book, which is called We Are Watching Eliza Bright. It's out from Grand Central Publishing now, so you can buy it yourself. And here is a reminder that you can also ask your local library to get you a copy so you can read it free with communism. Yay! So we're switching over to our second half of the show now. And honestly, I'm just very glad that we have a little bit more time to talk about Station Eleven because I have to say this book absolutely sent me on a wild fucking emotional journey as you know nat (laughs) (laughs) yeah nina i i feel like you have a lot of interesting feelings about this book and i feel so privileged to get to talk to you about this and to have had austin on to talk about it because it just shows how many different kinds of responses you can have to a novel totally yeah and i i mean i feel like the upshot for me for how i feel about this book really comes from like having read it for the first time. Like I said earlier, I was I was literally the day that the first case was announced in the continental US and I read it again just a few weeks ago, which is just as the CDC was announcing that they were loosening mask mandates and cities were are starting to open up now and in between was like this whole year, this whole past year. So I think for me this this fantasy version of what it would be like if a plague that was something like COVID is just really entwined with the real experience of the plague that we're still having. And I think it's just been a lot to try to wrap our heads around. <laughs> I don't know, maybe one way one way I was thinking we could get into it is the sort of general emotional tone of the book. And the thing that I think strikes me about Station Eleven as opposed to other post-apocalypses is just how extremely chill it is. Yeah, it's kind of a contrast to what you expect from a lot of apocalyptic and dystopian narratives, which is this sense of violence and tension and threat escalating. Station Eleven feels like it de-escalates. And Mm -hmm. I think that there's something really powerful and powerfully appealing about de-escalating a sense of threat and fear of apocalypse. Mm. Yeah, you know, I've been thinking a lot about that calm. And one of the touchstones of the novel is this quote, survival is insufficient, which is painted on the front of the first caravan of the traveling symphony. And um, the quote is really important to the main character, Kirsten. She's got it tattooed in her arm, but it comes from an episode of Star Trek Voyager. I find it so interesting that Star Trek is where this line comes from, because there are ways in which the book and Star Trek feel really similar to me. Like both of them take place in this kind of ostensibly terrifying and threatening scenario where People are moving through unknown territory and, you know, there's like 
no certainty about who they'll encounter, but both of them also have this sort of sense of calm and resolution and setting to rights that's sort of at odds with the intensity of the situation that they're in. And that's something about Station Eleven that is really interesting to me, like this post-apocalyptic novel that has like, I mean, just to read you an example, this is the beginning of the second chapter. What was lost in the collapse? Almost everything, almost everyone. But there is still such beauty. Twilight in the altered world, a performance of Midsummer Night's Dream in a parking lot in the mysteriously named town of St. Deborah by the Water, Lake Michigan shining a half mile away. And and so there's these like all these moments of just sort of looking around at the beauty and the quietness of the world. It's interesting. I mean, I think it's an underwritten perspective. Just the fact that when chaos reigns, all feelings and all situations are going to come up, not just violent, aggressive, bloody ones. Mm-hmm. And it kind of goes against the the tropes in a way that feels reassuring and almost parental. Yeah, that's totally <laughs> right on. Like, and, and I wonder, like, what is it that's reassuring? Because there's this quote on the back of the book, too, from the San Francisco Chronicle, where the reviewer said that the novel leaves us not fearful for the end of the world, but appreciative of the grace of everyday existence. And it's like, what does it mean to be reassured about an end of the world that doesn't necessarily imagine you in it, you know, like, well, I mean, I, one of the things I think is, it's reassuring about the way your death will be viewed by the people that do survive, Hmm. which is in this book, kind of elegiac and lovely. And there's almost this like poetic view of this mass death, where the characters frequently kind of like look up at the stars and feel this cosmic humanitarian grief. Mm. And like, you think, well, so I have two choices, either I'm one of the stars in the the moody sunset sky, you know, (laughs) rising over a Midsummer Night's Dream, or I'm one of the performers in that play. That's such a good point, that idea of like the sort of elegiac tone of the descriptions of the dead and lost world. And it's like, inevitably, I think when we're comparing a a novel about post-pandemic, it's really hard not to kind of bring it into comparisons with COVID. And I think that's a lot of what comes up for me as a reader. One of the things that we don't get to do right now very much is feel the grief of the losses that have occurred with this plague. It's like half a million people just in America have died and there's no sort of grand cultural gazing at the stars about it. Yeah, there have been attempts made to have those moments in, you know, some of the different really dramatic New York Times moments. Yeah, Um, yeah, that front page. And then soon after Biden went into office, there was a candlelit vigil, I believe. But Station Eleven is like this apolitical version where the memory does not involve any level of just the the awful, awful feeling I have when I think about Donald Trump and hydroxychloroquine, you know, (laughs) just thinking about that is I wish I did not know what that was. I know. know. (laughs) Yeah, but and it's because this plague in Station Eleven does happen to everyone at once. Like that, right. because the flu is so fast acting and so incredibly infectious, 
the vast majority of the entire world is wiped out within two weeks. And and I feel like the, the Georgia flu is a convenient device to kind of offload politics as external to the book because the nature of this infection just happens to render it like the great equalizer. And so therefore there's like no necessity to accommodate or really think through race inequality or income inequality or homophobia or any of these right. issues that have acted in like every epidemic or pandemic that's ever happened. Really, it's it's like a thought experiment to create this world in which there's been a pandemic and none of those kinds of like political or economic ways that we are divided up divided us in terms of how the plague impacted us. Right. I guess one of the questions is like, what does that allow this book to do? It sort of like creates a, a, a perspective from which it's reasonable to to like walk through the post-apocalyptic world not really thinking about how different people's positionality affected what happened to them like it's not like in parable of the sower where it's like from the perspective of this narrator they're like clearly the end of the world feels different for different people Mm -hmm. it's really interesting because i feel like there's different kinds of escapism that you see in apocalyptic narratives Mm. not in all of them to your point Parable of the Sower is not a novel I would deem as an escapist <laughs> narrative. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm not at all indicting that as an approach. No. And, you know, there have been times in the past where I've said, like, I really don't like the orientation of, like, what if you could do whatever you wanted? You know, then the people with the guns are going to be the bosses. Right. But, like, I think that the version of that that comes up in Station Eleven is, like, what if the virus just got rid of all of this political horribleness and equalized the entire globe and we could all just relate to each other on this even playing field of elegiac grief and love for art and the need to collectively make meaning aside from all of the inequality and social ills that existed before this plague came down on our heads and killed 99% of the human race. Yeah, that seems like a pretty clear articulation of it. The book is interested in how we make meaning. And I think that that is a really enjoyable for me experience at many times as a person who also makes meaning through art and like deeply loves Shakespeare and, you know, enjoys Star Trek also. Um, (laughs) But at the same time, I guess I like if I can't relate to other people without also holding space for like the unequal ways that chaos reigns on people and the histories of who they are (laughs) like then like that just makes me like I think I just feel uncomfortable the whole way through this book because I'm like feeling all of the whole rest of the world that I live in kind of floating on the periphery of my vision yeah not coming into focus in the book there are just different things to kind of pull in from the periphery there and one thing I think of is Regardless of whether or not the pandemic had the ability to create this equalizing force, even if it's like, well, we all just have to get along now and we have like 1% of the population of the earth is left. It's not like everybody just forgot about racism. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Like the pandemic hits. Only 1% of the population is left. And then suddenly people are like, we're living in a post-race world. No, you're not. And if you're saying that, 
and you're white and there are people of color hearing you say it, they're going to have the same reaction to it that they had before the pandemic, which is that's bullshit. And you're just trying to focus on your own narrative. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, I mean, there's a lot of ways in which this book feels like that's part of its project, honestly, is to not focus on it and to look away and to center its own narrative, like this narrative of kind of like white liberal culture that doesn't want to acknowledge that racism a thing. It's kind of a post-racial future. Like a couple of moments stick in my mind around that. One is that is just the sort of like fact that, you know, we just have this situation again with which Trey Andrea Russworm talked about in the Last of Us franchise, where, you know, characters of color are never kind of interested in their own experience as people of color. They're always sort of like oriented toward white characters and they are described as black or brown or Asian, but they're not talking about their own experiences as people of color. Right. Okay, that's like a white fantasy of people of color. And <laughs> and then right. there's this other moment that that I didn't notice the first time through, which is just like really subtle. And I, and I think this reading is really colored by kind of other feelings I have about the book the second time through. But there's a moment when we're in the South, we're with Jeevan from his perspective, um, post-pandemic Jeevan, so many years after the apocalypse, and he's living in the South, and he's like the untrained doctor for this community of people. And uh, a guy comes to him because his wife has been shot, and she needs care. And the guy is described as having cornrows, and then he tells Jeevan that they were working up in the fields at the plantation when his wife was shot. And- it's just, it's this moment that feels so loaded to me because I'm just like, he has cornrows, so I think he's being subtly identified by the narrative as black, but it's like this opportunity to like, I don't know, say something. Like, it's his plantation now, you know? <laughs> like, but it doesn't say that. It doesn't really identify like whether this subtly identified black man is working in the fields for someone else or for himself. It just seems like this leaps over this sort of gap of the meaning of farm work on a plantation in the South when you're talking about a Black character. Right. And that's, again, like, there's this version 20 years after the pandemic of life where somehow that's just left the collective memory of Black Americans that there is any loaded meaning of the word plantation, which is weird to me because <laughs> I feel like that wouldn't happen. But, you know, I wanted to go back to the thing you mentioned that Trey Andrea said about characters being of color, but their orientation is all like pointed towards the white characters or towards whiteness. And, you know, I really think about that a lot with Arthur Leander, who is this kind of straight white man who is this like central node that connects a lot of the characters in the book. Yeah. I also can't help but think of Picard and Star Trek because we've been talking about Star Trek. I mean, they feel, yes, yes. There's this sense of like the importance of focusing on this guy, this paternalistic male who is the sun that all the rest of the planets orbit around to continue extending the Star Trek metaphor. <laughs> I really felt the presence of Arthur Leander as one of those patrician centers in this book. Mm -hmm. And it was, I think, frustrating to me in part because I am living in, in a cultural moment now as a result of the work of Black Lives Matter during the pandemic 
where it's no longer okay to center that guy. Not that there's not literature that still does that, but there's so many people that I'm talking to and whose art I'm engaged in right now where we all feel this collective sense of being freed from that figure. Mm. And, and so like his dominant presence in this book really stuck out for me. I feel like it's interesting that Arthur Leander really is like the fulcrum in this book. All the characters are related in one way or another through him. So like Jeevan is the person who tried to save his life on the last night on stage. The Clark is his best friend. And and there's no like greater meaning for that. I think John Mandel is really interested in just like the sort of full mundanity of how we are connected to each other. And, you know, even in this moment when like 1% of the world's population survives, you know, you can still do six degrees of Arthur Leander. (laughs) But I hate like having to pass through him to get between some of the other characters. (laughs) Like for you, it's like from beyond the grave, like Arthur Leander doesn't even have to experience the post-apocalypse. He's still gatekeeping our relationships with all these characters. (laughs) 100%, 100%. And I felt that the most acutely between the relationship of Clark, his best friend, and Miranda, his artist ex-wife. You know, they had had this sort of encounter at a scene in the past. And they have, different aspects of identity that I am interested in personally. Clark is queer. Miranda is an artist. And it's so annoying because they're spokes on the hub of this Picard Shakespeare dude. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, no, it's true. Like they like because because that's how it works. Their their interactions are brief and and you know and sort of like impressionistic because they have to be connected through Leander. You know, it's okay for things to be impressionistic. I just think that maybe there's an initial point of decision that was like a sort of a selecting of Shakespeare and a selecting of this man, this King Lear figure, to be the initiating point. Right, right. And I think that that kind of all, like when we talk about the survival of art as the sort of way that we make sense of the world and all of the things that occur in it, including plagues, I think that both of those choices to make Arthur the center and to make Shakespeare the sort of like representative of art in the novel And then we have some other kind of things like there's a newspaper that eventually shows up. There's a museum. And I just, again, there's like museums, newspapers, Shakespeare. Like it's all culture from the same culture. (laughs) You know, kind of highbrow white liberal culture. Not to shit on Shakespeare because I. Yeah. I mean, it's like NPR. Yes, yes, yes. It's like NPR is is the is the only culture that survives, and we're all like trying to make meaning of the apocalypse, like through NPR, which we all just did, and it wasn't terribly satisfying. <laughs> I personally, that whole type of cultural context and cultural signaling always feels for me like such a I'm an outsider to it kind of thing where. I have listened to NPR many a day, but (laughs) (laughs) like, you know, it's interesting that the gay character is the one that creates this museum because there's this accommodation of a certain type of being gay that seems included in Clark's narrative. That's sort of like, I don't know, like these sort of type of more wealthy gay men that, 
we have a cultural stereotype of where he has this queer past, but like what's important about him is this museum curator identity he takes on in the post-apocalypse. And it's just like, did all the people die who would just be like, let's have like a weird avant-garde play where everybody's naked and we like throw mud on each other and scream? <laughs> like, where is that what art? Are like, I just feel like I feel like there would be some people who wanted to do that and that there would be productive disagreement in the symphony about yes. like all of these people were just like in high school band and they all know the same songs like oh my I, god I know like you and what happens when the symphony gets to the town where it's just like they only perform Brechtian <laughs> mud plays <laughs> and they're just like do you guys want to see Midsummer Night's Dream they're like sure can we show you our stuff <laughs> Right. <laughs> and they're like, wait, what is this? Like, we've been limiting our perspective so much for all for all these tours we've been doing of the Great Lakes. Like, I don't know. And I think, again, th- certain things need to stand in for everything in this book. And But they don't, like, need to, and they do. I mean, I don't know. It's, it's, it's a choice, right? And I feel like it's a choice that's made for a reason. Because yeah. it's beyond, like, where's the Brechtian mudplay friends to also just, like, Clark's gayness is in the past, you know? Like, that's that's one of the things that I'm like, what the fuck? He's in this airport. He's 50 years old. He never sleeps with another man again? That's really true. I don't even interpret it as being homophobic in this case. I interpret it as being like, this book doesn't always want to pay a visit to, like, lowbrow. Right. And it would be lowbrow to get into the details of anybody's sexual life. Right. And the upside of that for this book, which is something that I love about it, is that it has a a refreshing and unusual space made for friendship, including friendship between men and women. Intense, passionate, fulfilling friendship is something that this book is interested in. And I do appreciate that. I think it's something that, you know, is not in very many books, period, much less very many post-apocalypses. For sure. I also really love that. I love the relationship between Kirsten and August. And Clark also ends up with a very close friend. That is really rare and beautiful to read in a novel. At the same time, like when you have men and women just tossing off the bonds of gender norms and not needing a relationship between a cis female and a cis male character to be sexualized then you get into a space where you think oh is this like a post-gender society or a post-heteronormativity society Mm. and if so and people have tossed that off where's all the gay sex where's all the gay sex and the queerness and the people doing whatever the fuck (laughs) they want and having mad max hair like (laughs) where are the assless jabs that's what I want to know. <laughs> and like, I think the reality is that it's not exactly a post heteronormative society, just like it's not really a post race society. It's just that the people of color are oriented towards whiteness and the queer characters are oriented towards heteronormativity. Yeah. And I think that there's something about that that. Like, to be honest, I feel like part of why I'm bringing this like heavy, bitter critique to the to the feet of this book in some ways comes from like the degree to which the first time I read it, I was just like, this is a nice cloud that I'm floating on. 
And his descriptions are beautiful and it, you know, has this feeling of kind of walking through an abandoned mall, which is one of the things that I really love about post-apocalyptic literature when it kind of takes the time to look at this decaying world. I love that elegiac shit. But after I read it, there came this moment when I had this sort of realization about the death of the character Frank. You know, there's a elegiac moment of staring out at the city and the twilight and thinking about how his brother is dead in the next room. And when I read that, you know, the first time, like, it just, like, went right past me. But at a certain moment, it just occurred to me that the novel just, like, basically said that because Frank is disabled, there's no way he could survive. Like, it has the character say that himself. Like, there's no way I'm surviving out there. And then there's this whole scene where Jeevan has to, like, walk over a bunch of uneven rocks. And he's, like, really explicit about how uneven and difficult to walk on they are. And I just feel like the novel is kind of ju- trying to justify the fact that, like, it's true. Frank couldn't have survived in this world. Can't wheel his chair over those rocks. I just didn't understand why there weren't, like, resources in the environment there of building some kind of way of living in the city because you can't leave. Like... Why not figure out how to, like, boil water, find food, set up a farm here? Like, I just don't get that. Yeah, I, I feel this the same way. It's like, why isn't Frank's inability to leave enough to mean that they have to stay? You know? there's know. Just, Yeah, I and, know. and and I, I, there's ways in which that can sound just like a, you know, why did the novel make this choice? But what it did for me as a, as a reader was kind of flip my vision of this book from one where I was like here for the elegy for the lost world and the survival of Shakespeare via this like traveling troupe, which is a super compelling, like romantic, beautiful idea to like, oh, this is a book that's eliminating any threat to the survival of that culture as like the the primary universal culture. (laughs) It feels like a really, really great and solid artifact of how Often white liberalism sees itself as neutral when in fact, like that neutrality is kind of maintained through a lot of very violent excisement of difference. Absolutely. I mean, I think for me, it points to just how much of my own blindness and entitlement and sense of my own position as being neutral has been totally shifted and shown to be flawed by covid yeah i think the second read through for this book for me it's like i see that moment of rest and calm that the pandemic created for people who have access to like this as a relatively stress-free experience like remembering that moment at the beginning when I feel like there was a narrative going around about like oh well maybe this is a good thing like look at all the deer coming back to the cities and you know it's not just poor people getting it like the Saudi government officials have it too on live tv and we're all in this together and all that stuff and like then really really quickly it becomes clear that it's just like so so deeply not that there's this feeling like right now where it just feels like at this moment as things are starting to go back to normal and open up and like once again people with disabilities are being kind of thrown to the wolves in terms of if the vaccine doesn't work for you too bad we're we're just opening right 
And it just feels like the whole, it just feels like this forgetting thing is, is like happening in real time, you know? Like, I, I don't know. Like, I just, I feel this need to like make some space for like the elegiac part and the grief part. And I feel like the erasure part happening. So I guess it just feels like super loaded for me reading this book right now. Yeah. Gosh, I mean, there's so much there. I I don't know, like, I see some of that grief on display um, here in New York City. Hmm. Like, you can tell that people are grieving. I was at the Brooklyn Botanic Garden for Mother's Day, and we were walking and we came upon this group of people scattering ashes. Hmm. And I, I've had several times walking in parks and coming upon groups of people and realizing that what they're doing is some kind of memorial. Mm. And it's it's like this mix where you're like, people are walking along with no masks and talking and laughing. And then you walk on and there's a group of people standing there and you're like, what? Well, oh, are these people having a party? And then you realize they're memorializing someone who's now gone. Yeah. <laughs> and I mean, at those moments, I do feel like just that elegiac feeling of terrible grief and just this kind of, um, I don't know, like the heaviness of it. But it's interesting because as things are getting more open and people are starting to communicate and make plans again, there are aspects of it that I now can remember with some level of nostalgia. Yeah. And I'm not saying that because I think it's a good thing or a bad thing. I'm saying it because it's an experience I've started to have. Yeah. And it is a nostalgia for the simplicity, even though at the time I felt trapped and horrified and looking out at the Empire State Building, which I can see the edge of from my apartment, when it was red every night from mm. being lit up to just shine a light for all the fucking people that were dying here in that first massive wave. Yeah. So, I mean, I don't know what that has to say about Station Eleven, but I, yeah, I, I see what you're saying about this sense of, like, erasing that and creating a, a new calm or something, maybe. Yeah, I guess I, I think that's right. Like, every time I get a chance to even, to think about some, you know, anyone in particular... And I think that that that's one of the things that the book is is trying to do is like I feel like that's like part of the point of Arthur Leander is like it's it's gonna like lift up this one person's death and then have it just like totally subsumed within this tidal wave of death that comes immediately on its heels. So it's like this is a life. Does it matter if everybody else is dead? But it's like it's anger at everything that is lost in order to create this sense that things are okay and it's also like jealousy that this book gets to be about grief when like we like the actual reality of this plague for us has been like this sort of really intense public denial of grief and loss like we get mm. to the end of it and every time i hear about any one person's death it's devastating and, you know, these aren't people that are close to me personally. I haven't lost anybody close to me to COVID, but I've lost people close to me to other things. And I know what it's like. And 
the idea of like people going through that and it should be this like huge public thing and it's like not yeah where's our fucking elegy <laughs> i mean i think that that was part of what i was feeling when i saw those folks scattering ashes was seeing that added another person and mm-hmm. To me, it feels so heavy and also that there's some kind of thing that's like somehow kind of like taboo around like bringing it up, Mm -hmm. like that it is so heavy and big and overwhelming. And, And I don't know exactly why it feels like taboo to talk about it because we all did go through this. And so you'd think that you could just say, I feel this way or that there would be some kind of more means of communicating about it and collaboratively receiving it and, and dealing with it together. It's like, if we have to feel the full size of it, then like we actually, then like the universality kind of ends. We realize that like it, it's happened to different people differently and that, and that there are things that could have been done to make this better that weren't done, you know? And then we have to, like, go back in and grapple with it and be, like, like that's not how it should have gone. And, like, be mad and, like, have all of these feelings, not just, like, happiness about, you know, all of the many girl summers. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, I think that there may be a larger and more extended coping process ahead of us that is going to need to happen. Um, yeah. <laughs> For <you know>. sure. <laughs> Not trying to say we got to get it done in the episode. I'm just <laughs> <laughs> well, and I guess if that's the case, I'm just really glad that we came out of it with more kinds of art than they did in Station Eleven. It's not just like I don't know George Bernard Shaw and Sousa. <laughs> Thank goodness, <laughs> Sousa. <laughs> I'm saying if they're all in marching band together, that's what we got. We got we got the planets. <laughs> We got this post-apocalyptic nightmare ahead of us. We got the we got the instrumental version of Call Me Al. <laughs> Man. This has been Queers at the End of the World. Next time on Queers at the End of the World, we're building post-apocalypse from the margins with queer punk indie tabletop gaming legend Avery Elder. Her games of queer monstrosity and post-collapse relationships are gorgeous tools for making community, and we cannot wait to bring you our conversation about apocalypse, making art, and cooking for your friends. Our show art is by the fabulous Ellie Yanagasawa, who you can find for your own commission at Ellie the Cosmic Jelly. And you can find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash queers at the end of the world. The music for this episode was La Fin des Ericots by Tintamare. You can find us at QueerWorlds.com or at QueerWorldsPodcast on Instagram. If you enjoyed the show, we would really, really appreciate it if you'd rate and review us. It helps people find us and it lets us know that you're out there listening. And tell a friend who you think will enjoy it. That's by far the best way for folks to find out about the podcast. Part of the point of all this is for us to talk to our community, so we'd love to hear back from you. Get in touch with us at QueerWorldsPodcast at gmail.com. All right. Good luck out there, dear hearts.
there was an incident where like I put something in the microwave that I didn't know was metal and (laughs) suddenly there was a flame inside the microwave. Instead of just opening the door to the microwave, I started pushing all of the buttons. That's like the time when my when my wife and I saw a bear on the trail and I picked up a rock. <laughs> it was just my instinct. I was just like, okay, I got a rock. And Beck was like, what the hell do you think you're going to do with that rock? Fight the bear. Like, like, this is my book panic. 